0: Thank you for listening to Christ Church Showmans. This is Jared Sparks, one of the pastors at Christchurch Carbondale. We want to thank you so much for listening, as Ransom said, my son. And we ultimately hope that these are God-honoring. And because they are God-honoring, we hope that they are also edifying and encouraging and challenging to you in the best sort of way. Thanks so much for listening. How to think and how to act from Philippians chapter 4, verses 8 and 9. Let's go ahead and pray. And when we pray, we know that God hears and answers those those prayers. So let's go go to him and trust that he's going to hear us and answer this morning. God, we thank you for who you are, for all that you've done for us. I thank you for this group of people that's here. I love this church family. Thank you for John and Rain being here with us this morning. Thank you for just all the new people that have been visiting recently. And God, I thank you for this church family, for the members of our church, just all that you're doing. God, you're doing so much. Thank you that this last year we got to see 10 or 12 people saved and baptized. We thank you for our children. Coming to the faith, we thank you for just, uh, there's so many things we can look at and just say, yes, God, you're at work, and we thank you for it. Pray this morning that you would lead in everything that I say. I pray that I would honor your word. There's two verses here this morning, so help us to receive all that we can receive from these two verses. As always, God, I pray that you'd work perfectly through imperfect preaching. Um, God, I trust that you're going to do that. It's in Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Starting in verse 8. Finally, brothers, whatever is true whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there is any excellence, if there is anything worthy of praise, think about these things. What you have learned and received and heard and seen in me, practice these things, and the God of peace will be with you. Verse 8, how to think. Verse 9, how to act. Um, we, we don't typically, as, as Americans or as people in general, like, Directives like that. Here's how you think and here's how you don't think and here's how you act and here's how you don't act But as people who have been redeemed and purchased by Jesus who are filled with the Holy Spirit We love passages like this. We love it because it we see it like we saw last week. We see guardrails we, We're going to avoid pitfalls. We want to avoid this ditch And we want to avoid this ditch and there's a lot of things that we can waste our time thinking about and worrying about And we don't want to do that and so God tells us what to think about and how to act. And so what, when, what do you think about when you think about your mind and you just kind of reflect about your life and your thinking life, what is it that your mind typically goes to? When you drive, when you run, when you cook, when you, when you lay down at bed at night, what are you thinking about? And where does your mind drift? Where does it go to? Is it your hobbies? Um, is it your fears or anxieties? Is it a problem that you've got to fix? Or is it a problem that you're trying to avoid fixing? Uh, Do you jump from thought to thought? I'm typically like this. I'm I'm here for 30 seconds, here for 30 seconds, then here for 30 seconds. Um, Or do you get fixated like a pit bull gets fixated on a a toy? You can't let go of it. You just got to go after it, and you're not going to stop thinking about it until you've got it figured out. Uh, Do you have trouble staying focused long enough to figure it out? That's another thing. I can figure something 90% out, that last 10%. Is difficult. Or or do you dwell? Do you dwell when you're just by yourself? Do you think about wicked things? Or what the Bible would call worldly things? Um, Do you think about an alternate life that you could have? Over and against the life that God has given you? There's a lot of what-if questions in everyone's history. Where you can look back and and think, what if I would have made a different decision? What if I would have done that differently? What would be, what would my life be like? What would it have turned out like if I would have done things differently? And I tell you that can trap you. You can get fixated on that, and it can steal joy in the present. It can actually get you questioning God's activity in your life, even right now. Um, God is incredibly kind, really kind today, to give us some direct direction when our mind is off the reservation, when it's off. The guard, guardrails are not up. When you're going this way or that way, God gives us some guardrails. Uh, he tells us what to think about, and then he tells us what to do about it. And so there's some real clear direction today. And uh, how we think really does affect what we do. really does. The, what, what we think to be true, what, we are, what our bedrock foundational uh, worldview is, affects how we see everything that's happening from Sunday to Sunday. When we look at our home and when we react, when the milk is spilled, it tells us something about what we believe. Is that a big deal or is that a small, small deal? Um, so the way we see the world really is, not respond to the world, really is affected by what we think about God and what we think about the world. And we see that clearly, very clearly this morning. So think about these things. We get a big list of things to think about. So it ends with, if there's anything excellent, if there's anything w- worthy of praise, think about these things. And so we're just going to go down through the list. Real simple, you're going to be able to follow along real easy today, and we're going to look at all of these things to think about. And if you're in any of those categories that I just just opened with, then if you struggle with being fixated upon something or worrying about something or fear, okay, when those moments happen, when you're in that very moment this week, you can stop and ask, what does God tell me to think about? I'm going to rejoice my way out of this. I'm going to think my way out of this by thinking about what God has told me to think about. It's real practical, and it actually works. Finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is true. Now, first, when you hear the word brothers in the scriptures, just like with the word mankind, the, the Bible is not apologetic at all about being sexist compared to modern-day standards. Modern-day modern standards say that the Bible and that God himself is a misogynistic, anti-women, anti you know, modern sexual theory kind of stuff, weird stuff. God is against all things that are cool in our world today. And we just don't care about that because God just says what, it, what he said, he says what he says. He doesn't apologize. And when he makes male and female that are both equal image bearers with equal dignity and worth and then gives them and bestows on them commissioning, tells the man this is what you should do and the woman this is what you should do and then tells the man this is what you shouldn't do and then tells the woman this is what you shouldn't do, and And he bestows that dignity upon them by commissioning and and giving them prohibitions. They're both created in the image of God, and God calls that male and female mankind. He names them mankind. And it's not a shot or a jab towards women at all. It's just simply the name of the image of God, of image bearers, man and woman, is mankind. When we see brothers in the scriptures, ladies, that doesn't, it's not leaving you out. It's just giving a general term for Christians. When the Bible says brothers, that is including you. It's not excluding you. And so this isn't only for the men here today. That's just how God speaks. It's what God does when he defines his church. So he says, finally, brothers, including the ladies, whatever is true, whatever is true, think about that which is true. Christians, newsflash, Christians love the truth. We really love the truth. And if we don't, we should. Because there are many, many, many. It's coming up to the surface. It's bubbling up to the surface. There are many people who do claim the name of Christ who do not love the truth. And exactly what Leto is talking about, God is purifying his church, especially in America. When the pressure comes to you personally, or the pressure comes to the church in any way, when life gets you down or punches you in the gut, You find out what you actually believe to be true or not. And often we go to self-medication. We go to whatever we think works. And there are many who will abandon the truth to keep what they really want, which is respectability. Christians, however, real Christians who love God's word, love the truth. Now, we also love love. We believe in the truth and in love. But it is not loving to apologize for the truth. It's not loving at all to anyone, to your neighbor or to the world, to apologize for what God has to say. Truth, we know, is found in the Lord Jesus Christ, in the very word of God, and it's found every single time we open this book and read it. This is the standard of truth. It is outside of us. It doesn't come from within us. Now that flies in the face of everything that I grew up learning about. Not from my family, but from everything I grew up learning about in the world. And we see this all the time on TV and in shows. Every, everywhere you look, you hear people talking about their truth. That works for you and that works for me. This is post The postmodern idea is, is that truth is, divine, is definable by the individual. You can define your own purpose. You can define your own mission. You can, you can define your own life. What, what do you believe to be true? I won't step on your toes. You don't step on my toes. The idea is that truth is inside of each individual, and each individual gets to determine what their truth is. Now, even in secular philosophy, down through the history of the world, they know that truth is something that's outside of us. It's to be discovered. It's not to be determined. Christians love the truth, therefore, we bend our life, our will, our mind, our feelings around the truth. We submit to what God has to say, and we do this all across the world, all across the board, all the way up, all the way down, all the way to the left, all the way to the right in our life, and so we come to the scriptures not to bend the scriptures to make more sense to us. We come as malleable people. We come as malleable people coming to the word of God and saying, God, would you please shape the way I feel? Because how I've grown up or what I've known or what I've studied, I have some presuppositions within me because I was born in sin and iniquity. I was a rebel against you and you pulled me out of that. But I still have what some people used to call stinking thinking. You ever heard about that before? You know, a lot of country preachers like saying stinking thinking. You have some stinking thinking where your mind is just messed up. It's not right. And we come to the Scriptures not to bring our insides to the Scriptures and then shape it and and, and do what Thomas Jefferson did, although many of the people who were our founding fathers loved God's Word. He was one that loved some of God's Word. He didn't love all of God's Word, and that's representative of so many people around the globe. They'll take this piece and this piece, but I don't like this piece. But Christians love the truth, and we're to think about the truth. What has God revealed in His Word and in His world? And when you're in a pit, when you don't know what to do, when you are trapped, think about the truth. Bring your mind to what God has to say. We don't get to define it. We are shaped by it. So in our feelings, like we looked about last week, rejoice in the Lord always. And again, I say rejoice. You don't have anything to rejoice over. Okay, rejoice in the Lord. What's Christ done? Who is he? Rejoice in the Lord. When we come to this passage today, I, well, I don't know what to think about today. Okay, I'm going to think about what Christ has done. I'm going to rejoice. I'm going to obey. When we don't know what is true, think about what you know to be true. When the question marks are hanging in our world, when you don't know what will happen tomorrow or the next day, when you don't know what's going to happen in your career, you don't know what the cost is going to be, when you say no to something they want you to do or want you to believe, um, when they say Jared, if you preach a sermon on human sexuality and the Equality Act comes out, you realize they're gonna, you're going to lose your nonprofit status and you realize that you could face jail time. Okay, we'll, we'll start the sermon series next week then. Next week, it's going to be a 12 week series. Um, we love the truth, and we think about the truth. Um, I don't know where God is, he feels silent right now. And you start worrying about, is God for me or is he against me? And the enemy shoots his arrows and the flesh grabs you. You realize the enemy can't come inside of you if you're a believer. He shoots his arrows and the flesh that's inside of us rises up. Maybe God doesn't care about me. And then you think about the truth and you remember passages like Romans 5, 8. And the Holy Spirit just brings that passage to you. This is how God shows his love for us. While we were still yet sinners, Christ died for us. And you think, oh, I want to think about that. I'm not going to keep staying in the gutter. I'm not going to do what Nancy Wilson calls and go dumpster diving. I'm going I'm to think about Christ's love for me today. Think about the truth. Whatever is honorable, you can look right in your Bible and see where I'm getting this. Finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, we're going to think about that which is honorable. What in our world is worthy of respect? What is an honorable action? What is honorable character? Who are the honorable people? Do you remember about two or three months ago, it probably was in the summertime, so it may have been a little bit longer, and there was a story that got around the internet about a little boy who interposed between himself and his little sister in a pit bull. You guys hear the story? There was a dog that was going after this little boy's sister. He was a five-year-old boy, and he went and jumped in front of his sister, and protected his sister. She was like two or three years old, and he got bit up pretty good. I don't know if you saw it. He's going to have some scars to brag about one day. And what he did was honorable. It was very good. It's a lost virtue in our day. It's a virtue that everyone knows should exist. Yes, men are to protect women. It's a virtue that we all should know and love and When we're in the pit, again, we can think about honorable actions. We can think about the fact that that is something that God commands us to do. And that's a good and right thing. When we see nobility, when we see something honorable or honorable character, we can think about that and praise God for it. You know people in your life um, that you respect, that you really respect. And you know that they do the right thing not to get the praise of people, but because the Holy Spirit of God is within them, they love God, they, they're so thankful for what Christ has done for them, and they just they love people. And when you think about that person, you think about the work of God in their life. Because anything that we do that's virtuous, honorable, or true has been given to us by God himself. And so when we see that in others, we're thankful for it because we see God at work. Whatever is honorable, think about such things. What about the word Just. Whatever is just, we're to think about justice. Tell you what, I don't know if this word has been, I can't remember in my life anyways, when, have, ever a time when the word justice has been so maligned. Right and wrong, the measured discipline for an evil action or measured reward for that which is right. Romans 13 calls civil authorities to reward the good and punish the evil. And unless your head is like a mile buried into the sand, we live in the United States of America today, where we're at. We reward evil and punish good. Um, We don't know what justice is. We call wickedness justice. And we call justice wickedness. Um, Christians have been sucked into this like crazy. It's everywhere. The critical race theory stuff, the Marxist stuff, calls wickedness good and good wickedness. It's divisive and it's evil. But Christians are to think about what is just, what is right and wrong. We're to think about what is good. We care about real justice, we also care about justice being maligned. When lawbreaking abounds, it bothers us. We know where to take that bother, we know to take where to take that pain. But we also cry out for justice to prevail, for real justice to prevail. When we see wickedness and the world celebrating wickedness, we cry out: come, Lord Jesus, come, fix this. You bought this world, make this right, bring justice swiftly. When Isaiah five twenty is in the streets, woe to those who call evil good and good evil, who put darkness for light and light for darkness, who put bitter for sweet and sweet for bitter. It makes us cry out, God, bring justice. Let me be an agent of justice. Help me to do what is right. Think about what is just. Judgment for wickedness is just. God will not let the wicked go unpunished. And I am so thankful for that. And I want to give my life to crying out to the wicked. Come to Jesus while you can. Bow your knee now before it's too late. Please come to him. We know what true justice is. And what you deserve is the wrath of God. And it's the same thing that I deserved. But let me tell you, let me tell you about the God who is just, who comes. He sent his son, the Lord Jesus Christ, to live and die for you. That you could be forgiven. That you could be justified that you could be made right with God. You can actually have peace with God right now. You've heard me say it probably a hundred times now. Christianity is the only religion in the world that puts justification on the front end. You can know right now you are right with God. Right now. You don't have to wait till after you die. Maybe you've done enough good. Maybe, I don't know, hopefully I've not done enough bad. My life's been weighed in the balances. Christianity says, no, 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 no. Your life's been weighed in the balance. And what justice is is that you deserve a cross. And so does everyone in the world. And yet Christ came to bear that cross in your place. Amen. And he came to live the life you should have lived. And we love thinking about that which is just. The just God who came to do for sinners what we could never do for ourselves. God does not let the wicked go unpunished. And he didn't let you or I off the hook. Jesus died and we died with him. He didn't just say, oh, your sins don't matter. No, no, no. They cost a lot. They cost God the Father's dear Son, when we don't know what to think about, think about that which is just, that God will make all things right. And not only will he make all things right, he will make all things praiseworthy. Even his wrath against sin and sinners, because his wrath doesn't just come against sin in general, it comes against actual people. When we say flee, like flee now, flee from the wrath that's to come, we're not saying sins go run away. We're saying people run away from the wrath of God. Come to Jesus. Because God's wrath is really coming to people, not just upon sin. And when we think about the justice of God, that everything in the end will be praiseworthy and right. When God brings his justice to this earth finally and fully, and when the eternal state is here, we will look at everything and say, God is good, and we will praise him for it. He has judged the darkest wickedness that people thought they would get away with. Everything that happens behind closed doors, God sees. There is no Capitol building that can close. There's no shenanigans that can happen. There's no wickedness of riots and bombings and burnings that happened all summer. And whatever happened at the Capitol building, there's nothing that happens in quiet that God does not know about and that God will not bring his justice to. And when we don't know what to think about, when we're down, we think about that which is just. When we look at the evil and wickedness in the world, we can think, God's going to, he's done something about this and he's going to do something about this justice. Think about that which is just. Something else to put in your thinking Rolodex. Think about that which is pure. See it. Whatever is just. Whatever is pure. Whatever is pure. Pure has to do with innocence and holiness. It's good to think about pure and holy things. And those words pure and holy are deeply, deeply theological. Um, think about we just talked about justice. Think about imputed righteousness. Imputed righteousness is like the gateway drug for uh, the grace of God. Um, y- you know, you just go through there. It's like the Narnia. Okay, the, the entrances into Narnia are like a wardrobe and a picture on the wall. Like the wonders of God's grace. So many people come through the, the doctrine of the imputed righteousness of Christ, which is simply this: the the active obedience of Jesus and the passive o- obedience of Jesus gets to be counted as yours. Like Jesus didn't just die on the cross to empty your, you know, like your sins are forgiven. Now you're morally neutral. Now get to work. He also gave you the very righteousness. It's like your life that you live now. God the Father sees the very life of Christ upon you. He also treats you as his sons. He can still see the sins that you deal with, but he does not deal with us according to your sins. Jesus has taken care finally and fully of your sins. He does discipline us as sons, but it's never punitive. Because all of his punitive wrath was taken upon Jesus. He gave us his righteousness. And that righteousness is never going away. It wasn't simply imparted righteousness. Theological lesson here. Imparted righteousness is when God is working in you and changing you from the inside out. And that's good, true, and right. Imputed righteousness is something that's declared about you. Irregardless of your sanctification. Right now, at any moment, the rest of your life, even when you're in the valley, you have the imputed righteousness of Jesus. You are declared righteous. You are declared. The declaration has come. Righteous. You're my son. You're my daughter. That's not changing. Think about that which is pure. The pure, innocent, Holy, powerful, strong, lion-like, and lamb-like life of Jesus is counted as your life. He gave it to you. Here, have the purity of my life. It's yours. It's good to think about that which points us to the holiness of God. Um, Each of these words, it's interesting as we look at these words, each of these words, as we think about these things, they have an end point Because you know the thought trail when, you know, you're, if you're like me, people have told me over the years that I'm a little bit what they would call random. So I think about several different things and then people wonder, how did he get there? And I can't tell you how many times Jordan's like, okay, tell me how you got there. You know, like, what was the thought train? Because one thought leads to another thought leads to another thought. And then all of a sudden you're on season seven on Wikipedia for Saved by the Bell. You're like, how did I get here? All of these words, as you think about them, it's like a thought train. It leads to something else. And they have an end game here. In the end game, you find the attributes of God. It gives us a thought. We think about them, and we end up thinking about God. Because we can't think about these words in isolation to themselves. When we think about purity, we think about what is pure. You have to, in the end, in the thought train, you end not just on season seven of some weird show. You end up the very purity of God, the holiness of God. God is holy, and he's altogether different than me. And yet, by God's grace, I get to approach the throne of grace with boldness. I get to come into his presence and not be burned, not be destroyed. I get to enter into the holy of holies, behind the curtain. I get to be in his presence, the holiness of God, the holy God of the universe, who has no impurities. There's no impurities in him. He is holy, good, and right. There is no accusation that we can bring against him. He has never done anything wrong, ever, in his apparent inaction. When people in the world cry out, well, if there's a God, why are there so many wicked things? Why does he sit and do nothing? We bring our accusations against him. They have no idea what they are saying. God is holy. When we think about these words, the thought train train should take us to the end game, which is thinking about the God of the universe. We think about the word lovely. What is lovely? I love these words. We think words like this sometimes could be feminine. and, And certainly, we think about feminine loveliness, something that's lovely. But men need to discover the glories of this kind of stuff as well. What's lovely in the world? What's lovely? Man. What gives pleasure and satisfaction? Tell you what a hard day's work, a beautiful home inside, smells coming from the kitchen, that's lovely. Thanksgiving dinner, that's lovely. There's a big difference between a TV dinner and a Thanksgiving dinner. There's a big difference between chicken teka masala that you get in the microwave thing and chicken teka masala that my wife makes, real Indian food, which, I qualify as my wife my wife making it is amazing uh, we went to uh, our honeymoon we've been married now ten and a half years and my folks gave us a little bit of money for um, a honeymoon and went nine days in Hawaii thirty one hundred dollars we budgeted everything nine days on Waikiki Beach and we took public transportation everywhere got a little sketchy a little bit But if you've ever been to Hawaii, you've actually eaten pineapple. I mean, real pineapple. Nobody else has unless you've been to Hawaii. Anybody here been to Hawaii? Okay, the pineapple, right? Like, my gosh, I've never eaten pineapple. Pineapple in Hawaii is lovely. You taste it, and you're like, I'm tasting the goodness of God right now. Like, this is amazing. What is lovely in this world? Obedience to God, the victory of Christ. Think about that which is lovely. What is commendable? What is commendable? What is worthy of praise? Whatever is commendable. What in our world or in our life or in church history is commendable? You read about church history. Uh, Terry and I were talking about William Carey and Adoniram Judson and, and different people in the in the history of the church who have sacrificed so much. I'm reading right now about a wartime general who had sacrificed so much for the sake of, the sake of Christ, for honoring Christ. And you think about... I mean, great acts of bravery, knowing I'm going to die, but I'm dying for a cause. I'm dying for something. By the way, like the church needs to rediscover this. And by the way, um, America, sidebar here: the American Revolution was right, good, and holy. They were warring against the breaking of the law, and they were fighting on the defense tyrants. And it was admirable. There was a black robe regiment of pastors, Presbyterian pastors, who were recruiting men to fight against the tyranny and the law-breaking. Count me in that number, because I would have been there as well. What is commendable when you look into the history of the world, look into your life, when you see something honorable, commendable? Again, the thought train brings you to God, but we see this. If we open our eyes to see what's around us, we see honorable and commendable things all around us. I want to commend that. Thank God that you came and encouraged me today. Thank God that you were were obedient even when you were mocked for it. Thank God for that. Think about that which is commendable. I can't tell you. I, I'll never forget reading the book about Adniram Judson through the Golden Shore. He's the first Baptist missionary. He went to Burma. And he didn't see a single convert for eight years. And he lost three of his wives. There's a book called The Three Mrs. Judsons. Three wives all died. Many of his children died. And he didn't have a single convert for eight years. His life works that he just spent so much time translating the Bible, burned up in a fire after he'd been translating the language, the Burmese language, the Bible into the Burmese language. Imagine how disheartening that would be. Seriously, all that translation work, God? I was doing this for your glory in the nations, and here everything burns up. So he just starts all over again, ends up translating it all over again. That's commendable. That's commendable. Think about such things. Excellence. What is excellent? Whatever is commendable. If there is any excellence, moral excellence, when you see conviction in action, it's an excellent thing. We've already mentioned John MacArthur this morning. How many through the summer, okay, going and looking everything that's going on and through the spring and the summer, and you see that MacArthur takes a stand. And unfortunately, he saw so many of his friends turn their back on him. But you saw him take that stand and you saw those videos, and you're like, man. Even if I don't agree with the man, I did. But even if you didn't, it's like there's a man who's acting on principle. He's not a man that gets everything right because nobody gets everything right. But at least there's somebody that's willing to make a stand for something. My gosh, would you please give us more men and women like that? That, don't, that aren't just a wet noodle, weak need. ah, well, I don't know. If it bothers you, I don't, maybe I'm wrong. Like, oh my gosh, please make a stand for something. And when you see it, it's much to be desired. When you see moral fortitude, when you see, and, and people call conviction arrogance today, and people will see it as a character default, if you have conviction, have it anyways. Bear the brunt of people calling you arrogant, or can you call, don't be bullheaded, I'm not saying that, okay, don't, don't be mean to people, but it's not mean to stand for the truth. It's quite loving. You have to know in your heart if you're being mean, standing for the truth, because it is an easy thing, we've said before, to hurt people with the truth because you want to hurt people, and you want to hurt people more than you want to stand for the truth. There's a big difference there. But when you see something excellent, you want to think about it. What about anything worthy of praise? If there is any excellence, if there's anything worthy of praise, think about these things. Is there anything worthy of praise? Throughout the day, if you'll start looking, if you'll start looking, you'll see praiseworthy things. You'll see God at work all around you. And you'll think about passages like God taking care of the birds. This morning, we walked to the back, and I was like, hey, boys, check this out. And in our backyard, there was literally like 10,000 birds. Like It was like that Hitchcock movie, Birds. There were just birds everywhere. You look at the backyard, and there's like a million of them that walk real slow, and Ransom's there looking, and they saw me, and they all went instantaneously. You know, they fly fly away instantaneously. Who feeds every one of those birds? Let's just get some interaction here. Who feeds every one of those birds? God feeds those birds, every one of them. There was probably legitimately thousands of birds in our yard. That's just in our yard. God feeds every one of them. Think about how powerful God has to be in his... Intellectual capability of, of the providence that, of his reigning and ruling of the world to feed every single bird and every single animal. And Jesus takes us to that in his sermon. And he says, if, if God clothes the flowers of the field and if he feeds the birds, isn't he going to take care of you? Aren't you more valuable than a bird? Whoa. Think about stuff like that. If you look, you'll see praiseworthy things. There's a buffet of things to praise God for. Here's the challenge, think about those things, find them, see them, and then thank him for it. Think about them, this is how we should think. If our mind is fixed on these things, let me just ask you a question, will we be more positive or negative about life? Okay, these aren't just like magical incantations of the self-help world, and we said that last week. This isn't just like some guru Tony Robbins kind of stuff. Um, If you think about these things, it's going to change the way you live your life. It helps us in seasons of discord and difficulty because we're seeing all around us, God's at work. Everything's burning down, but you know what? God's at work. God's at work. And we're seeing what happens when people want to rebel against God. That worldview implodes, It burns, fizzles. God's at work. He's exposing the futility, the ways of the world. God's at work. You know what? There's a flourishing group of people. My family's doing great. The church family's doing great. Our friends are doing great. God, why don't you come and just be a part of reality? Invite them into something different. Invite them into the very kingdom of God. If we think like this, we would be more optimistic and less pessimist, pessimistic. Um, if we thought like this, would we be on the fence about everything that's going on, or would we be more a little, a little more fired up and courageous and bold? Um, like we'd be a little bit more fired up, courageous, and bold. Thankfully, we got an army of people like that in here. Some of the most creative, courageous and bold people I know. Most godly men and women that I know, and I'm thankful. I see this all the time. I've seen this this year. Um, I've seen a lot of people ridiculing, ridiculing and mocking their congregations. A lot of pastors who think they're more holy than now. Con- a lot of congregations. There's been a lot of shots fired all across the board um, this last year in the internet world, Facebook world, and what we're supposed to do, everybody's got an opinion about COVID. Uh there's a lot of people who think what we do is crazy and sin and, and all that kind of stuff. And you just gotta you just gotta do what you believe God's word has to say. Um but through all that madness, here's what I've noticed. Like I'm looking around and I love you. This is an amazing community. We got friendships growing here. We it's just people who love God like it's just a privilege to serve you. It really is. I just I I love being a part of this church. And Our church is messed up. I'm a part of it, believe it or not. So, I mean, it's messed up. Every every single person here is messed up, so every church has issues. But man, I love you. Um, I really do. So I think we can be optimistic together. I think we can be fired up together. This is how we should think. Think about these things. About how to act. There's been a lot of instruction and a lot of direction. There's been a lot of declaration of truth in the book of Philippians. Let's hear about how we're to act. Look at verse 9. What you have learned and received and heard and seen in me, practice these things, and the God of peace will be with you. Okay. Four things. What we have learned and received and heard and seen in me, practice these things. Okay. Paul wanted people to follow his example. Now, this could sound arrogant. It wasn't. There's a way to be humble and say this, and there's a way to be arrogant and say this. Paul, when he called people to follow him, called people to follow after Christ, to abandon and to self-denial, to abandon their dreams and their plans and submit them to the Lord. Follow me as I follow Christ and lay my life down for the the people of God and for the good of the world. I'm going to live my life for Christ. Follow me doing that. He wasn't saying, hey, I've got the plan. I've got, I know what's going on. I've got the vision. I'm the prophet here. Follow me. Not that. No, 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 no. Follow me as I follow Christ. We're going to Jesus together, and if you want to come with me, I'm going to put my arm around you, and I'm going to encourage you, and I'm going to pat you on the butt spiritually, and we're going to go after it. We're going to go after Christ. We're going to follow him. And he says, what you've learned, received, and heard, and seen in me, practice these things. Now, Paul had a consistent, all-round kind of holiness. It wasn't compartmentalized. He was a godly man. He wasn't a superhero. He wasn't... um, this is, Paul was not this unattainable, he's a guy just like us, flesh and bone just like us, with the Spirit of God within him. Yes, he was an apostle, one untimely born, but he was a man just like us. And so he had this kind of all-round holiness. Now, once more, a commentator this week, listen to this, one of the greatest things I read this week about this passage. He said, Now, the main thing in the life of a pastor, we're going to take again what we did last week, we're going to look at the life of the pastor, but then bring out the implications that this passage has, because as a pastor and as an apostle, he's saying what you've heard, learned, and received from me, there's going to be implications for for every single person, but here's what he says, now the main life of a pastor should be that he may speak not with his mouth merely, but by his life, there isn't the public life of the preacher, and the private life of the preacher that shouldn't be there. One of the things I'm laboring to do is help pastors just be consistent. be Just to simply be a godly man and be consistent across the board. Don't be really good at preaching while you're sleeping around. You're doing things you shouldn't be doing. Be consistent. Not with his mouth merely, but by his life. and and procure authority for his doctrine by quality of life. Paul, accordingly, procures authority for his exhortation on this ground, that he had, by his life, not less than by his mouth, been a leader and master of virtues. So when Paul says, what you have learned, received, heard, and seen in me, he knows that if they replicate his life, they are going to be more healthy, not less healthy. Just come and live the way I'm living. Do what I'm doing. And he's not running around trying to say, hey, come worship me. saying, come, hey, listen, I'm following Christ. Come follow my example. Gather around me, and I'm going to show you how to live the Christian life. Do what I do. Live how I live. Follow me as I follow Christ. So much of the Christian life is about the culture that is caught. It's the culture that is caught. We replicate pastors and then the family in the home, the men in the home, what ends up being replicated is the culture that's prevalent wherever the people are. It's crucial in all areas of our lives. Children get confused by a don't do what I do, do what I say kind of command. You've heard that before, I'm sure. Hopefully you've never said that. Don't do what I do, do what I say. That's the kind of inconsistency that Paul is shattering here. When parents say that kind of silliness, that culture gets caught, and then it's normalized that I can say one thing and do another, that I can be a hypocrite, and that's okay. Discipleship is holistic. Let me ask a simple question. If the people were to follow you, the people that are around you, what culture would they catch? Men in your homes, as you're setting the pace in your homes. What's the culture in your home? Will your children, will your grandchildren, if you spend time with your grandchildren, will they want to replicate that culture? Or will they want want to forge their own based on what they experience in the home? Not by just what you say, the culture of your home. Discipleship is caught, not simply taught. What culture, wives, are you setting in the home? Or for your kids, An upset wife or an upset mom makes for an upset home. A lazy man leads to a lazy home. A hypocritical man leads to a hypocritical home. The implications are huge. What culture is your family getting from you? And Paul says, practice these things. What you have learned, received, heard, and seen In me, practice these things. This is why Christian community and friendship is so crucial. So crucial. Um, Find someone who is down the holiness road a little bit more than you and practice what you learn, hear, receive, and see in them. Humbly submit. Um, Humbly submitted. I want to say this. My life should be one that you would want to replicate my life. Every pastor should be able to say with the Apostle Paul, okay, follow me as I follow Christ. And I want to be careful here because this could be, like I said, you're just going to have, I'm just humbly saying this. I need to live my life in such a way where I could say to every one of you men, if you'll just spend some time with me. And then that should be replicated in you. If other men spend time with you, then what's going to be replicated is Holiness that I should be able to say, come, learn, receive, hear, and see, and then practice what you see in my life. Do what I do. Follow me as I follow Christ. Elders have a culture within a church. They build a culture within a church. You'll see this in churches. So what your elder, if you've got a health, healthy plurality of elders, there's implications to the church. It doesn't mean elders are perfect, qualified, but imperfect. But the culture that's set, From the pulpit and the elder team ends up being adopted by the congregation in time. Unhealthy leadership equals unhealthy congregation in time. Certainly there are anomalies where there's really healthy Christians and really unhealthy churches or really healthy churches with really unhealthy Christians. There's anomalies. I get it. But culture is caught. Elders have to have a culture. We must present to the church for the church to follow. Follow us as we follow Christ. We're going to tell you when we mess up. We're going to tell you when we sin. We're going to repent and run to Jesus. That's one of the things we want you to follow us in. Amen. Repentance and running to Jesus. Amen. We don't want to act like we're holier than thou. We don't want to act like that we are so full of Holy Spirit that we don't need to repent. But there should be a replicable culture. There should be a culture caught here. And I think people who have been here in our church for a while can see, okay, there's a culture here. There's, there's a group of people that want to hear from God. They want to humbly obey. So i got a couple questions. Um, Oh, before my two questions. Hold on. Um, God has made the Christian life a life of friendship and followership. Both of those. Friendship, followership. Uh, We need each other. Like I said at the very beginning of the service, if if pressure does come in ways that we haven't experienced before, we're going to need each other in ways that we've not known before. And so we have to encourage one another. Who are you learning from? And who are you teaching? We've said it before. Who's discipling you and who are you discipling? Who are you asking? Come alongside. Most of us, family, friends. I mean, it's kids, grandkids. But who are you discipling and who's discipling you? Practice these things. Practice is going to include f- failure and frustration, ups and downs. Keep practicing. The word practice, you can put it in any area of life. Where do you, What in life do you have to practice that's so e- that's easy? You have to practice for a reason, because something's hard. You want to get better at it. So practice these things. Practice what you've heard. Practice what's preached. Obey. When you hear from God, obey. Practice these things. It's not something that just kept, got it, going to obey the rest of my life, never going to mess up anymore. Got it. Practice these things. Keep practicing. Rejoice in the Lord always. And again, I say rejoice. Well, that's hard. Keep practicing. Well, I'm thinking about everything that's going wrong. I know it's hard. Keep practicing. Keep practicing. Think about these things and said, Practice. Paul lived that. We should be living that. I should be living that. Practice these things. Look at verse 9b. There's a promise again attached. I love this. What you have learned, received, and heard, and seen in me, practice these things, and the God of peace will be with you. The God of peace will be with you. The promises of God's presence are all over the pages of the Bible. You are never alone, ever. You'll never be alone. God is with you, and he is for you, and there's nothing you can do about it. He has changed you from the inside out. You didn't just make a decision for Christ. He made a decision and changed your heart and made you from dead to alive. He put his Holy Spirit within you and you are transformed from the inside out. The God of the universe lives within you. The Holy Spirit of God is within you. And he's not going anywhere. You can't shake him. And you don't want to. In times you're in the pit, you feel like "I, I have messed up so bad. There's no way God would want to do anything with me. And almost every one of us in there have been in that moment when you know, nope, God was faithful to me even when I was faithless. He was for me even when I was against him. He held me. His arm is strong enough to save. He is not weak. He is powerful. His blood was not impotent. It's pregnant with power. And he's not going anywhere. He loves you. He's for you. And friends, if you're struggling, take heart. The God of the universe... His peace is with you right now. Even if you don't feel it, take this to the bank. His peace is with you. He's not left you. He's not forsaken you. Jesus was forsaken so that you would never be. Amen. God will be with you. The God of peace. I love that. In the turmoil, in the tumultuousness, we know the God of peace. Really. These aren't fables. These aren't fairy tales. He's our father. He's our heavenly Father. And as we practice, we know that the God of peace is with us. Practice of godliness is not burdensome or tumultuous. It's not a burden to bear. God does not torment us with condemnation for our failures. You say, "Boy, my practice has been terrible. He doesn't torment us, doesn't. He doesn't just simply remind us, "Hey, silly, hey, you fool. When are you going to get in line?" It's not how God operates. The enemy sure does. Your flesh sure does. But God doesn't. Our chief motive in practicing these things, in thinking about these things, in pursuing how to think and how to live, is that there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. When we're dealing with the thought life and the action life of a believer, we're dealing with categories that could be very condemning to people could be. But we come to the sure foundation that the God of peace is with us and there is no condemnation for any who are in Christ Jesus. So we will practice these things knowing that the peace of our heavenly father is with us. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your grace that's upon us. We want to think and act as you would have us think and act. And we want to grow and practice these things not out of fear of condemnation, but out of joy that Jesus became our condemnation for us. We have nothing to fear. The biggest questions in life that most people have are already answered. We have peace with God. And you, the God of peace, are going to be with us. And so God, help us. I pray that we would be shining lights, that we would be a bastion of hope in a world that's going darker, that you would push back the darkness, and that the light would pu- would pour and Push through as we sing in one song that we're gaining ground. We believe that. We don't see all this going around around us, but we know the trajectory of history is going towards a redeemed earth. The trajectory of history is going towards a saved world. You are at work in our midst. Help us to see it. Lead us. I trust that you will. It's in Jesus' name I pray. Amen.